So uh, last week was uh, was interesting. I had somebody come up to me after uh, the service, and they said, "Man, I can really tell that you're from the South." And I was like, "Okay, well that's cool." Um, he said, "No, it's kind of like you're a Southern Baptist. You get fired up." And I was like, "Is that a compliment? I, I hope so, because I'm." I, I am. I'm fired up. We serve a good God. God is still on his throne today. Um, it's interesting. It seems like every week we look at the things that are happening in culture and we look at the things that are you know, going on and sometimes it's easy for us to get discouraged. But whatever your view is on whatever thing that's happened, God is still on his throne. God is still reigning. God is still leading his church. And we're here today because of that. See, we don't have to fear anything that happens. We can celebrate because God has a plan. He's, he's not off his throne. He's on his throne, and he's with us today. Now, as we wrap up a series on love, one of the things I thought about is just how challenging love is. It's challenging for me, and I'm sure it's challenging for you, and I'm sure all of us can identify the challenging people that God has called us to love. And I know a lot of the women here are saying amen. I'm sitting beside of him. I'm just joking, but all of us at times are challenging to love. And all of us at times struggle with and are challenged by loving other people. It's, it's just that love is a challenging thing. Because there's difficult people in the world who need to see the love of God, and it's hard. But for me, what's sometimes even harder than loving the challenging person is challenging the people that I love. For me, sometimes it is much more difficult for me to challenge the people that I love than loving the challenging person because to love the challenging person means that I can do something and then I can walk away. Sometimes just being patient with someone is an act of love to them, but to challenge someone that I love invites some problems sometimes. It, for one, relationships are fragile. The people that we work with, maybe if we challenge them too hard, then instead of bending, they're going to break. Maybe they're going to look at us and they're going to point out some of the things that we do wrong and then it's going to get really awkward. And how do you love through that? But I think even more than that, the reason why I find that love is sometimes harder to challenge people is that um, secretly inside I really don't like to be challenged. I get comfortable where I'm at. I like where I'm at. Challenge means difficulty. It means hardships. It means me getting out of my comfort zone. But... If we're talking about loving as God has first loved us, then as we have walked with God, we have to realize that God challenges us. You see, the Holy Spirit, if you've been walking with God for just one day or a hundred days or a thousand days or however long it's been, one thing you will come to realize is that the Holy Spirit, while he's called a comforter in scripture, he's not interested in our comfort. And as he comes and dwells down inside of our heart and he looks at the house of cards that we've created out of all the mess that we've had to create it with, he's not interested in leaving us where we are because he loves us enough to take us to where God wants us to go. And the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. He doesn't override our conscience. So if you're not experiencing the Holy Spirit today, I just want to ask, could it be that maybe that you're holding on to the walls that you've built and the Holy Spirit's got a bulldozer ready to tear down every single thing that we have built that's not built on the solid rock of Jesus Christ and that is the best thing for us to be remade in Christ's image. See, the Holy Spirit wants to make us into a brand new creation and that's challenging, that's hard. 
And if we have been loved that way by God, and if we have been loved that way by his Holy Spirit, then there has to be some merit for us leaning into and challenging others. There has to be some basis in Christian community. There has to be some way that we can maintain love while also lovingly challenging. Because if one of the most loving things that Christ's Holy Spirit has done for me is challenge me, then there's got to be a way for me to lean in and challenge others. Now, I was thinking about this. The Old Testament has a beautiful picture of this, and it's iron sharpening iron. Now, have you ever thought about that? Iron sharpening iron? I mean, because here we have scraping, rubbing, grinding, crushing, crunching, grating, intense pressure, clanging, overwhelming heat and friction, and a lot of what is on that piece of lead has to fall off before it can be used for the purpose of the master. See, it has to be rubbed against and it has to be in friction before it can be used by the master. And like that piece of lead or whatever it is, iron, I'm pretty hard-headed. And for God to use me sometimes, he has to take me through troubling circumstances. He has to bring friction into my life. And a lot of times he's done that in community. So we have a, a high responsibility. But again, I want to admit that sometimes it's easier to love the challenging person than it is to challenge the person that we love. But as I thought about this, the Lord really brought an example in the Bible to me about how we can do this effectively. Because I want to admit that if we lean into someone too hard and over-challenge them, they're not going to feel very loved. And that's not what Christ wants. But if we walk with somebody and allow them to stay in their sin, it's almost like we're agreeing with where they're at. It's almost like we're enabling them to stay. And I don't think that Christ died for us as a church to be like that. I think that we encourage one another and we lean into one another and we notice that we are going to greater things because we serve a greater God. So all that introduction to say, turn with me to 1 Kings 17 and we're going to be in verses 8 through 16. And it's a really interesting example of how this plays out. So the way we're going to do this is I'm going to walk a little bit by little bit through the text and I'm going to explain a little bit about each part and it's going to go back and forth a little bit but just follow with me. We're going to keep it up here on the screen, and we're going to look at all of the uh, very interesting and wonderful things that God's Word has for us today. So again, it's 1 Kings 17, and it's uh, starting in verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Now, who is him? This is Elijah. This is the prophet of God, one of the most incredible and mighty prophets of God, the one who later says for fire to come down from heaven. The Lord responds, and he rains fire down from heaven. You see, at this time and in this chapter, we are in the country of Israel. And Israel at this time did not love and serve the Lord. They were actually loving and serving this God named Baal, uh, or Baal, however you pronounce it. Now, the one thing you need to know about Baal, out of all the many things that I could tell you, is that he's a storm god. He's a god of the clouds. He's a god of the rain. So that when people would worship this false god, what they were really trying to do was twist his arm into making it rain. And as a farmer and as a, an Israelite in, the, in a very dry and arid climate, I can kind of see why that they would go to such extravagant means to, to try to get rain. Because that's their greatest fear. That's the thing that's going to kill their crops and eventually kill them. Now, the, Lord came, or the word of the Lord came to Elijah and it said, go at once. To Zarephath, which is in the region of Sidon, and stay there. Now, this is incredible because when we look at Israelite history, we realize that a man named Ahab was on the throne. And Ahab was a very, very, very wicked man. But even more wicked than Ahab was his wife, whose name was Jezebel. And we even have a popular phrase when we don't like somebody, we call them a Jezebel. 
which is interesting, but it just goes to show the kind of woman that she was. None of you are Jezebels, but that's just uh, the kind of woman that she was. She worshiped Baal. She loved this, and she had prophets of Baal, and she brought them to Israel so that they were enamored by this God. But the hometown that she came from was Zarephath. So what, what God is literally doing is he's leading his prophet into the lion's den, this is the place where Baal worship was the strongest. This is the place where they loved and served this false god, and yet Elijah's the one who told him there would be no rain. So you can imagine, he's public enemy number one. Nobody likes this guy because he's the one who turned off the rain. God says that I have directed a widow there to supply you with food, and I find this fascinating because against the backdrop of a wicked and evil queen named Jezebel, God uses a humble and lowly widow to feed his servant. It's a beautiful picture of just God and, and the way that he uses the unlikely to do the incredible. So he went to Zarephath, and when he came to the town gate, which is where all of the uh, important people hang out, a widow was there gathering sticks. Now, what you need to know about that is don't miss the details sometimes because they're dense. When you read the Bible and you look at things, when you see something like that, don't just assume that he's just trying to make a, or she's just trying to make a fire. See, because in ancient Israel and in the surrounding regions, no one would have cut down a tree in order to make a fire. You see, if you had flocks and if you had herds and if you had crops, then you were rich. But if you had trees, you were blessed because a tree took 20, 30, 40 years. And with life expectancy being that low, if you were to chop down a tree for a 15-minute fire, then you would never see that come again. You see, what an enemy would do when they conquered you is they'd cut down your trees, the very first thing, because a tree was a sign of God's favor and of God's blessing. But here we see this woman collecting sticks so that the famine had to have been so severe that when the roots burrowed down into the soil and they could not get any water, that the tree was dying. A very visible symbol of the death that was coming to all the people was the twigs that were lying on the ground. So as she gathers these twigs she would have known that death was stalking her. He called to her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I can have a drink? You know, I take this for granted. Berkeley and Jensen made this, and it's right here at my convenience, but in a time where there was a drought for more than two years, this is incredible. Like, I almost want to recommend Elijah for Old Testament sensitivity training. Like, can you bring me some water? And she's like, you're the one who caused it. You go get it, man of God. But she doesn't say that. I'm just saying that's probably what I would want to say. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and bring me also a piece of bread. Now, if this were me. I would be like, dude, don't you know where bread comes from? See, this little thing called rain has to come and wheat has to grow and I have to grind it up. And then also, hey, you've noticed me gathering these twigs from this, maybe it's an olive tree, and I have to use olive, to, olive oil to cook this bread so that you know there's no water, so now you're asking me for bread. I would be a little frustrated, but she says, as surely as the Lord your God lives. Now, that's important. She doesn't say, my God. She says, your God. As surely as the Lord, your God lives. That's interesting. Remember that, because that'll come up later. I don't have any bread, she said. Only a handful of flour in a jar and only a little olive oil in a jug. And I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and for my son 
that we may eat it and die. Now that is a bad day. I can't imagine a day like that. You know, I mean, I go home and, and I get frustrated if there's not enough food in the refrigerator. But to know that I'm going into a moment where I'm going to eat my very last meal and then die, that is a very heavy thing and, and that's a very hard thing. And Elijah, look at how he responds. He says, don't fear. And she's like, have you not been listening to me? I don't have any water. I don't have any food. My olive trees are dying, and you're telling me not to fear. Elijah pushes her just a little further. He says, go home and do as you have said, but first make a loaf of bread for me. From what you have, bring it to me, and then make something for yourself and your son. Now, this has to take the cake. And in Hebrew, it actually does mean a little cake. So... Elijah is asking her for the very thing she's getting ready to give to her dying son. And we wonder what this man is thinking, but then, then he gets to the point. He said, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, he doesn't say my God, he says the God. And he says the God of Israel, which is interesting because Israel was a nation only because they wrestled with God and they considered God. You see, Jacob was renamed Israel after he wrestled with God. And ironically, that was not going on, but yet he's inviting her to wrestle with this God, to know this God, to meet this God. He says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain upon the land. And incredibly, she did, or she went away and did as Elijah told her, so that there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and for her family. And it repeats it for emphasis. It says, for the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord that was spoken by the prophet Elijah. Now, this is an incredible story, but I just want to mention three things, just three things that we can be doing as we look at how do we love? How do we love as we've been loved? And then also, how do we challenge others to move on to the great things that God has for them. So first, the first thing I want to tell you, the very first thing, you can write this down, people will not care how much you know until they know how much you care. That is a reality, that people will not care about how much you know until they know how much you care. Notice that Elijah enters into her world, a world where she is worried about death, she's worried about food, she's falling apart at the seams, and yet Elijah doesn't pull out his New American Torah and turn to Leviticus and say, oh, hey, by the way, God is sovereign. He's going to take care of it. He starts talking to her about food and water. See, that was what she needed to hear. That was her pressing need. The most loving thing that Elijah could do was go to where she was at because that's where he had to go first in order to speak to her, in order for her to feel really, truly loved. He starts talking about water now, of course, he, he would affirm that God is sovereign. He would affirm that God is in control. And as we affirm today in the situations of our life, that God is on the throne. He is in control. We, we, we believe that. We agree with that. But we can never use the sovereignty of God as complacency in relationships. We can never hide behind a theological truth and not invest in the person that God made. Have you ever heard somebody tell you that they're going to share the truth to you in love? I had a guy come up to me once. He goes, hey, Kendall, man, listen, I really got to share the truth with you in love. And I'm like, because I know what was getting ready to happen. 
See, he was telling me that what's getting ready to come is truth, so I can't disagree with it. What's getting ready to happen is love, so I can't object to it. But yet, he didn't have the relationship with me to speak into me like that. And it was hard for me. It was challenging. And it, was, it wasn't until years later that I understood what he was saying. Because he was right, but he didn't have the relationship with me in order to, be, to speak to me that way. And this is not what Elijah does. He meets her where she's at so that he can speak to her about the thing that she needs most. And today, I really believe with all my heart that God has you exactly where he has you. It is not a coincidence that you have the neighbors that you have. It's not a coincidence that you have the job that you have. It's not a coincidence that any of those things happen because God has you exactly where he wants you. And God has people already in your life that he's ready for you to speak to, that he has called you to lovingly lean into and challenge. But I would pray that you would realize that people are not going to know or not going to care about what you know until they know how much you care. So I think that we have to be sharing the gospel. That's a given. Jesus commanded it. But we also invite people over for a meal. We walk with them and meet with them and we show them the love of God, just like we talked about last week. Now, this is just the beginning. This is just the beginning because, see, with love, I can't just talk about action. I can't just talk about what we say. I can't just talk about what we show because love also stays. See, in this passage, it says that Elijah went and he stayed. He left his country, Israel, to go to another country, and he had to have a long investment there. See, he didn't leave when the bread ran out. He didn't leave when she wasn't getting it. He didn't get frustrated and give up. He stayed. And I think that the way that Elijah was going to get this woman and the way that God was going to get this woman from a your God kind of gal to a my God kind of gal was by staying. Because sometimes people will not experience the presence of God until they've experienced your presence with them. Some people... This doesn't happen all the time, but a lot of people will not experience the presence of God until they've experienced your presence with them. And are we committed to walk with them? Are we committed for the long road? Now, this happened poignantly in my life. I went on a mission trip to Korea, and I was 15, and I knew everything. I don't know any other 15-year-olds like that, but I definitely thought I knew everything. And the one thing I knew is that I wanted to go and change the world for the gospel. So I prayed and I said, Lord, lead me to the place where there's no Christians, where there's all these pagans and heathens so I can go and share the good news. And I said, guess what? Oh, I got it. I'm going to go to Korea. And I got there and there was more Christians per capita than anywhere else in the world. And it taught me something about myself. But more powerful than that, the one thing that I've learned that shook me ever since that day is a day when we were sharing our faith in a prison we were handing out tracts, and I thought, I'm really doing the Lord's work. I'm being personal. I'm handing you a track, and I'm walking away. And what happened was, is a young man came up to me who had stolen some property, and he was in prison, and he was ashamed. He, was, he felt guilty. He carried the weight of the world on his shoulders. His mom and dad had abandoned him, and he probably felt a lot like God had abandoned him, too. And he said, through an interpreter, could, could you stay for a little bit with us? Now... Being a, a good missionary, which I'm being ironic, um, I considered the mission more important than him, and I left. Now, of course, I'm 15. Of course, I can't stay for a lifetime with him, but I think what I communicated to him was a different mission than what I'd hoped. 
You see, I told him that he was valuable enough for me to go to see him, but he wasn't valuable enough for me to walk with him. And what I have wondered is if he inferred the same thing about God, that God loved him enough to send Jesus to die on the cross for his sins. That's the track that I gave him, but yet he didn't love him enough to meet him in the prison. I wondered if he felt abandoned. I wonder if he felt alone. I wonder if he felt as empty as this woman in the text, like God had given up on her. I wonder if some of us today feel that way. I wonder if we feel like that God loved us enough to meet us here on earth for three and a half years and then he died to save our sins, but yet I don't feel the presence of God with me today. I I wonder because if we're honest, I think we've all been there, right? But I love what Jesus says in John 16, 7. His disciples were facing the same problem that we faced. They were worried, they were anxious. Lord, how are we gonna do life without you? How are we going to live here in this earth without you when you go away? And he says to them, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. See, Jesus said that I had to leave, but I'm not leaving you alone. And if we feel like we're alone today, if we're in Jesus Christ, we have the Holy Spirit of God. It might not always feel that way. I don't know about everybody else, but the way that I have felt the Holy Spirit most powerfully in my life are in the times that I've submitted most fully to Jesus Christ. When I hold on to the things of this world, when I hold on to the things that that burden me and carry me down, I I don't necessarily existentially feel as connected to the Holy Spirit, but he's there. I know he's there. He's confirmed it time and time again. I heard somebody share the other day that you can't argue with a man who's had an experience. And praise God that I've experienced God, and I hope that for you. So that no one can look at you and no one can ever tell you your God doesn't exist because you have felt him. And the challenge, because love challenges, the challenge today is that if we have experienced the presence of God, then we would also share our presence with others. That we would walk with them. But again, I mention this because we can't stop there and love can't stop there. This is just the first two things that this text shows us. It also tells us that we have to see past a person's want to offer them what they really need. We have to see past a person's want. We have to see past a person's current affection to see what it is that they really, truly need. You see, this woman had placed her hope in one last meal. She had a hunger pain that wouldn't quit, and she thought, if me and my son could just eat this one last meal, then we would be okay. But the the problem was is that that hunger pain would come again. And again, and and it wouldn't matter how many times she tried to satisfy it. And for us, if we went through a three-year drought in this country, eventually we would be in the same position. If our bank account went in a three-month drought, we would be in the same position. You see, when we put our hope and our trust in things in this world that are going to eventually fail us, then we're going to be starving to death and frustrated. But what Elijah does is he sees past her current want, and he gives her what she needs. He directs her to God because God is the always filling, never ending God. You see, God is the God who can take a piece of bread and multiply it and feed 5,000 people. God is the kind of God who can take a jar with just a little bit of flour and a jug with just a little bit of oil and feed her and feed her continually. You see, we have to redirect our misplaced affections onto the only affection that matters and that's God. So that you might say to me, Kendall, we need food three times a day. I get it. I get a headache every time I don't eat. But This text is telling us there's something more important than food. There's something greater than food. There's something greater than the air we breathe, the water we drink, and that's God. That's a relationship with our Savior. 
because the default pattern of our heart, unfortunately, because we're sinful, is to always be redirected off of the greatest thing, which is God, and onto the limited things. There's so many times that, that I find myself bound up with fear. It's because I've replaced my greatest affection, which is God, with something that cannot satisfy me. And if I'm honest with you today, I want to be loved. Sometimes I struggle. I worry about other people's opinion of me. I want to make people happy. But what I really need more than just being loved is also being loved and being challenged because I have blinders. As I'm going down the highway that I call life, there are things that are in my path that I can't see, that I need you, that I need you, that I need all of you to look out for me. And I would hope that I can be there and look out for you because as a community, love does not just go. Love does not just stay. Love also challenges because we believe and we affirm that God has got greater things for us and we're only going to do that as a church. The American way is individualism and God's way is community. You see, I want to affirm the fact that love is a challenging thing, but love also challenges Now, I don't want you to think that I've just superimposed this on this Old Testament text. I saw something very fascinating, that this is actually the heartbeat of God. This is the way that he came and he lived. You see, what I find interesting is that you always hear about the last thing that Jesus said, go to the ends of the earth and make disciples of all nations. And we affirm that with every ounce of being that we've got. That is a high challenge. But what I have often forgot is the first thing Jesus said to his disciples. Turn with me to John 1, 35 through 39. It'll be up on your screen. This event, this moment, is the very first interaction that Jesus had with his disciples, and it's the very first thing that he told them. And the reason why I say we can do these things is because it's already been done for us. This is the way Jesus lived. The next day, John the Baptist was there again with two of his disciples, and when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. And when two of the disciples heard him say this, they left John and followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following him, and he said, what do you want? Jesus is identifying where they're at. What is the thing that they want most? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Because see, human beings want to know first that you love them and that you are ready to go where they're at. See, if I were Jesus, I would have been so excited to be like, dude, we're going to change the world. You're going to have to follow me. Oh, by the way, you're probably going to die a horrible death, but don't worry about that right now because we got awesome things to do. You see, they couldn't handle that right now. What they needed to hear was something completely different. I love what Jesus does. He says, come and you will see. So they went and they saw where he was staying and they spent the day with him. And it was about four in the afternoon. You see, the thing that most of us do, the thing that I have done most frequently is I have divided up this thing called love into two different categories. I have been overly challenging to people at times because of my zeal for the faith, and they haven't felt really loved. To counteract that trend, I have loved people and not said anything, and I've enabled them to stay where they are. But Jesus lived his life doing both. Here, it was a small challenge. Come and see where I'm staying. Later, he says, feed 5,000 people. Later, he says, go to the ends of the earth. It's because he had walked with them, and he had poured into them, and he had given his life for them. So today, I just want to encourage us that love is going to where someone is. It's staying with them there. It's identifying their greatest need. 
but it's also doing sometimes the hard thing, which is providing a godly and holy challenge because we want to love people enough not to leave them there, but we want to, as a community, be walking in the fullness of what God has for us. So let's pray. Father God, your word is so amazing, and we just are so grateful that we get to gather here today. And Lord, I found it just breathtaking how your life and your ministry, although it's just three short years that we have recorded, is so dense and so rich that it can teach us everything that we need to know about this life. Lord, I thank you for the example of Elijah, that he lived this out and that he demonstrated this for us, but yet that we can connect it to Christ because Christ is our hope. We have been loved by him, so now we can love like him because of the Holy Spirit of God. So Lord, I pray that the Spirit would just take over this place and that you would start a fire inside this community that cannot be contained, that Woburn would feel it, that Massachusetts would feel it, that anything and everything we touch would be set ablaze because we have been set ablaze with the powerful powerful Holy Spirit that raised you from the dead. In Jesus' name, amen.